Well, good evening, Hellos Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles, if you have one, and turn them open to Isaiah chapter 53, to the passage that was just read for us a moment ago. If you do not have a Bible, know that we have some Bibles provided on the table over by the Connect area. You can grab one of those to use during our time together. If you do not own a Bible, let that be our gift to you. Just take that with you uh, as you go tonight. Isaiah chapter 53, we're looking at one of the most important passages in all of the Bible dealing with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and what that means for people like you and I. And so I want to pray for us before we study it together one more time. God, would you give us grace as we step into this passage? Would you open up our eyes to see the beauty of the Savior in the words that are written here? Give us a felt sense of your love for us and the depth you were willing to which you were willing to go to redeem us, to forgive us, to cleanse us of our sins. God, be with our minds over these next few moments. Be with our hearts. Be with our lives. Help us to receive what you would have us receive over these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, not too long ago, I found myself re-watching the modern military classic, Saving Private Ryan. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And and if you're familiar with it, you know that it tells the story of a World War II soldier named James Ryan. And James Ryan has three brothers, and his three brothers were all killed uh, in the war within a very short uh, length of time between each other. And so in an act of mercy for, towards James Ryan's mother, the military decided to commission a small troop of soldiers led by Captain John Miller to rescue Ryan and to bring him home to his mother. Well, the movie goes to this moment where in the process of trying to rescue Ryan, John, John Miller lost his life, and there's a moment where he is dying in Ryan's arms, and he looks up at Ryan, and he tells him, earn this, earn it. And then the movie jumps to the end where Ryan is hanging out at Miller's grave, and he's standing over his tombstone, and and while he's standing there, he's got tears in his eyes thinking about the life that he has lived up to that point. And listen to what he says. He says, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my best life, that I, tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all you did for me. And he begins to break down and with tears in his eyes, he turns to his wife who is standing by his side and he says to her, tell me. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I am a good man. And I was, as I was watching that scene for what's probably the 12th time in my life, this, this particular time, just seeing Ryan break down under the pressure of trying to live up to Miller's sacrifice, I, I could not help but see some of your faces there. I could not help but see some of your faces in that moment because some of you are breaking right now. You're breaking under the pressure of a distorted gospel. In your mind, you think when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out to you, earn this, earn it. And that's exactly how you've been trying to live the Christian life, trying to earn it, trying to prove yourself worthy of the sacrifice that was made for you on Calvary so long ago. And so rather than living a life of wonder and worship, you're living a life of pressure and performance, and it's destroying you. It's wrecking your life with fear and anxiety and discord. 
And perhaps you're hoping that a guy like me will stand up in a moment like this and look at you and say, hey, you're doing it. You're living a life worthy of the death that was given for you. And, but to be honest with you, I'm not gonna tell you that. I don't think anybody should ever tell you that. You and I will never live the kind of life that will be on par with what Jesus did for us on the cross. And what we gotta consider tonight is that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not look at us and say, earn this, earn this. What did he say? He said, it is finished. That's a completely different message. That's a completely different reality. That our salvation is entirely dependent upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That means the kickstart of our salvation and the completion of our salvation. Everything in between is dependent upon those words. It is finished. There's nothing more for you to add. And what you're gonna see in Isaiah 53 is that the only thing you bring to the table in your relationship with God, in your acceptance with God, in your assurance before God is your need for the Savior. That's the only thing you bring. Whether it's before you become a Christian or even as you live the Christian life, the only thing you bring to the table is your sin and your need for the Savior. One of my favorite scenes comes from uh, one of my favorite books, The Lord of the Rings, and it's this moment where the hobbit, Pippin, is standing at the gates of a great city, and in comes this great witch king, this demon king, and he's there to destroy the city, and it looks like he's going to succeed. It looks like he's about to destroy everything, and then off in the distance, Pippin hears the horns. He hears the horns of the riders of Rohan. And these mighty soldiers are being led by the king of Rohan into the city to save the city. And even though the king lost his life in the process of doing just that, the city was saved, the city was spared. And we are told that for the rest of his life, every time Pippin heard a horn off in the distance, he burst into tears. Every time he heard a horn in the distance, it would reawaken the memory of his salvation and the memory of the one who died for him every single time. Well, here in Isaiah chapter 53, the horn of our salvation is blowing in a distance. The horn of our salvation is blowing in the distance. In fact, this passage, you consider it being read, uh, written pro approximately 700 years before God in Christ would come to our rescue. And the prophet Isaiah would send a signal to us telling everyone, look, your salvation's coming. Look, your rescue is coming. Look, your redemption is coming. And, and then he goes on to with remarkable precision and prophetic insight to describe in crazy detail the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to travel through this passage tonight and just reawaken the memory of our salvation, just reawaken it. And to those of you who may be with us, and maybe you're not a Christian, I want to give you a memory of salvation I want you to hear this passage as something that is applicable and relevant for you. And maybe tonight's the night you come to see the Savior and what he has done for you. In Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, we're introduced to uh, the servant of God. 
Now, to be clear, there are times in Isaiah when servant refers to the prophet Isaiah. There are times in this book when servant refers to the nation of Israel. But here, this passage is looking forward into the future. This passage is looking towards the servant who is to come. And when you get into the New Testament, you begin to see this, that seven different times in the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is quoted in reference to Jesus. Eight times, 12, eight of the 12 verses in Isaiah 53 are explicitly attributed to Jesus somewhere in the New Testament. So you and I can see the servant in verse 13 and have the advantage of knowing his name. That the servant's name is Jesus and he's gonna, he would come and do for us what Isaiah or Israel or anybody else was, entire, was utterly incapable of doing. I mean, you just notice his mission in verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He's going to win. He's going to do what he's been sent to do. And he goes on. He will be raised and lifted up and exalted. And so the passage starts on a high note. The servant, the servant is going to be successful in his mission. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be glorified. He's going to be lifted up. But... It appears that the servant's road to glory, his road to success, runs through suffering. So you pick it up. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he's going to be successful, but in order to be successful, he's going to suffer. There was a moment early on in the life and ministry of Jesus, not long after he went public with what God the Father had sent him to do and we're told that the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of the Lord, drove Jesus into the wilderness, and there he was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by Satan a, a few times. Well, one of the temptations sounded like this. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So the temptation in that moment was for Jesus to seize glory apart from suffering. That's what that temptation was about. It was seize glory for yourself. You can bypass suffering. It can all happen right now. If, after all, if Jesus is the son of God, why should he serve? If he is the son of God, why should he suffer? If he is the king, why should he be crucified? And had Jesus succumbed to that temptation, had he given in, seizing glory for himself in that moment, apart from suffering, he may have exalted himself, but he would have exalted himself to the exclusion of everyone else, which means his mission would not have been successful. His people would continue to be stuck in their sin, separated from the God who created them, separated from the God who sent Jesus to die for them. And this is a familiar temptation. I think our hearts are very familiar with this. We're oftentimes tempted to exalt ourselves to the exclusion of others. That's just the way we live. Especially if that means we can avoid suffering or doing something hard. I mean, after all, in our flesh, we don't want to serve. We just want to be served. That's a lot easier. We don't want to love. We just want to be loved. Loving, oft, loving someone often requires sacrifice. It often involves service. And so we don't really want to love. We just want to be loved. We're constantly seeking to consume everything from people, not really to contribute anything to people. See, fallen humanity is essentially the moral equivalent of a black hole, a black hole that devours all matter and particles within reach, consuming everything, contributing nothing. That's the nature of sin in our lives. 
That's the nature of, that's the essence of the temptation that is Jesus is facing. Seize glory for yourself to the exclusion of everyone else, but Jesus is a lot better than we are. This is why he's a good servant. This is why he is the savior. He resisted that temptation and he, he followed his course. He followed the course marked out for him even though it involved intense suffering. Look at what it says about him. It says that Jesus would suffer so much that he no longer resembled a human being. He was appalling to look at. I remember years ago when Mel Gibson came out with his movie, The Passion of the Christ, it caused some controversy because people viewed it as being too brutal, too gory, too bloody. They didn't like his rendition, thinking it was too violent. But isn't this what Isaiah is saying here? He's saying Jesus is gonna suffer so much that you're not gonna be able to recognize him. He will not look human. And understand that this suffering that Jesus is going to experience is not a mistake, it's his mission. This is why on more than one occasion, Jesus would prep his disciples trying to get them ready. Hey guys, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. When I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. He told them that over and over and over again. And he had to go to Jerusalem for that, according to verse 15, because his suffering would do something for us. His suffering, according to verse 15, would lead to the sprinkling of many nations. That's just fun language to say Jesus is going to cover our sins. He's going to cleanse us of our sins. The language of verse 15, it draws back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And if you've ever wondered, okay, why in the Old Testament did you have all these sacrifices? Why was that system put in place? The best way to kind of think about the sacrificial system is this. I would say that the sacrificial system is essentially a teaching sacrament. That God designed it and delivered it to Israel with these, with these practices and procedures, with these rhythms and these routines to communicate three things to the people of Israel over and over and over again. Those three things would be God is holy. He's ridiculously holy. The other thing would be human beings are sinful. We are ridiculously sinful. God's holiness and our sin is a problem. It creates separation. So what is needed? Covering. What is needed? Cleansing. What is needed? Forgiveness. What is needed? Atonement. And so the sacrificial system, the third thing it would say is that God is going to make a way for that to happen. That God is going to provide a way for his people to be reconciled to him, a way for them to be cleansed. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel are constantly offering up these sacrifices over and over and over again. To be a priest in the Old Testament, you want to talk about job security. That, that, that was one job you were never really in danger of losing. You had security. It was wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. And so much so that you begin to interact with the Old Testament like, well, do the sacrifices accomplish anything, anything at all? What do they mean? Well, when you get into the New Testament, you get into Hebrew, the book of Hebrews is really written to answer that one question. You come to Hebrews chapter 10 and listen to what we read. Since the law was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder. This is its point. There's a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God never intended for that system to work actually. He intended that system to work 
pedagogical, uh, that's a terrible word. He intended for that system to work in a teaching capacity didactically. It was designed to teach and to instruct Israel, prepping them to be able to receive and respond well to what the servant would do. That it was a temporary placeholder, placeholder put, in, put in position until the servant shows up in the world. So when it comes to the servant's mission, this is what we're saying. The servant's mission was for him to die a repulsive yet redemptive death. A repulsive yet redemptive death. That was his mission. Now consider his identity. You consider his identity, and it, it's all the more astounding. It's all the more astonishing. Check it out in verse 1 of 53. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You might want to circle or underline that phrase, arm of the Lord. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 51, this phrase, the arm of the Lord, is used in reference to that moment when God himself acted in history to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. That's the arm of the Lord. It is God himself acting to save. Check it out in verse Verse 9 of Isaiah 51, wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Wake up as in days past, as in generations long ago. Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seabed into a road for the redeemed to pass over? The arm of the Lord do that, did that. And here in Isaiah 53, what's happening is the arm of the Lord is associated with the servant. And so the arm of the Lord, if that's God himself coming to rescue his people, what this is is another indication that Jesus was God, that the Savior, the servant, is fully God. This is who Jesus is. This is what we said last week when we looked at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. But he was more than God. We said last week Jesus was the human God which is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the servant, in Jesus. God himself was coming to our rescue. God himself was acting to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. So he's fully God, but he's also the human God, which is what's described in verse 2. It says that this Jesus would grow up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Meaning Jesus wasn't physically attractive. When Jesus entered a room, he wasn't turning heads. You may recall Kristen Miyasoto's art piece from last week. It's hanging on the wall back there. I would encourage you to, to check it out again tonight where she reminded us that the glory and the beauty of God was veiled in common, ordinary flesh. The glory and beauty of God was veiled in the, this humble person named Jesus. And then he goes on, this Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and get this, we, we didn't value him. Now think about that phrase. Isaiah begins to put us in the story. He begins to put readers in the story. You know that Isaiah wasn't there. He wasn't there when Jesus was born in a back alley stable behind a rundown hotel. Isaiah did not witness Jesus' growth and development in Nazareth. He wasn't there, and neither were we. Yet he still says, we 
didn't value him. Here's where we begin to see the power of the Bible. Here's where we begin to see how the Bible is living and active, how it is sharper than, two edged, than a two-edged sword. The Bible is not an ordinary book. It is a book that as you read it, it begins to read you. It's a book that in some ways cuts us so that it might heal us. It affects us by showing us who we are and what we are like. And sometimes what the Bible has to say about us isn't flattering. It isn't pleasant. And here the Bible is saying, look, we, we, all of humanity did not value Jesus. We did not see the truth and beauty of God in the person of Jesus. And he lumps everyone into this moment. You know, one of the, one of the devastating things about the fall, one of the most devastating things about our fall from grace in, in the beginning is that it distorted our ability to perceive and appreciate the truth and beauty of God. So that because of our sin, we do not naturally respond, we do not naturally gravitate towards the truth and the beauty of God. We do not value him. And this shouldn't surprise us. Even in the Gospels, this is kind of the trajectory of Jesus' life, right? I mean, you just think about it. If Jesus, in performing the miracles that he performed in the Gospel, don't you think those miracles should have had a bigger impact than they actually did? You think about Jesus. His own family did not receive him. His own family were cynical and suspicious of him. You think about Jesus walking through towns with his disciples. It wasn't like the movies. If you ever checked out any Jesus movie, I kind of stay away from them. But if you ever, ever checked out one, uh, they usually show Jesus kind of glowing with this remarkable glow. That, that's making him very attractive and, and just drawing people to him. That's not really how things went down. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 did not recognize who it was she was talking to. Even his own cousin, John the Baptist, there was a moment where he himself expressed uncertainty and doubt about the truth and beauty of Jesus, wondering, could he really be the Christ? There was that moment in his life. You see, Jesus was not special in the ways that count with fallen human beings. He wasn't special in the ways that count with us. We're too superficial. We evaluate everyone and everything based on appearances and accolades. Everything is external. We're superficial in our assessments. So you consider the identity of the servant. On one hand, he's ferociously God, but on the other hand, he's forgettably human. He was forgettably human. In April of 2007, Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians in the world, he set his violin case next to a garbage can in a train station in Washington, D.C. He took a cup and he put it out next to, his, next to the case and he dropped some coins in there, some seed money to, to get, some, get some more money rolling in and he just kind of set it up there and he was wearing a t-shirt, blue jeans, and a ball cap and, and he sat down and for 45 minutes he played six of the most elegant pieces written for the violin. And he played it on a violin well, worth well over $500,000. And it was all part of an experiment put on by the Washington Post, an experiment in perception, context, and priorities. It was an experiment designed to say, do people recognize beauty? And if they do recognize beauty, will they stop and appreciate it? And so Bell played for 45 minutes. 1,097 people passed by. Seven stopped for a minute. 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32.17. 
1,070 people hurried by, oblivious to the man whose talents demanded $1,000 for every minute he plays. A hidden camera captured the uh, moments that Bell referred to as the awkward moments, the ones that really made him uncomfortable, and it always happened after he would finish a piece. He would finish a piece and there would be no applause. There would be no acknowledgement, just pure silence or just the hustle and bustle of regular of the regular rhythms. In interviews conducted after the experiment, only one person recognized Bell, and this was a woman who attended his concert just a few days prior. Stacy Ferricoa stationed herself a few feet away from Bell, front and center, and this is what she said. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping, not even looking, and some people were flipping quarters at him. Had you been an eyewitness of Jesus, you would not have recognized and appreciated him either. At worst, you would have openly despised him. At best, you would have flipped your quarters at him. And this is true not only of those of us who might have Even if we just imagine living in the first century, this continues to be our response today. At worst, we despise Jesus. At best, oftentimes, we just flip our quarters in his direction. Jesus, you're good, but you're not God. Jesus, you're cool, but you're not Christ. Jesus, your death was nice, but it wasn't needed. Jesus, you're a way but you're not the way. Just flipping our quarters in Jesus' direction, apart from God's grace, we do not perceive and appreciate the truth and beauty of the servant. This is why one of my prayers as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple in this world, how, how dependent I am upon Jesus and uh, just makes me wake up in the morning and pray this prayer almost every day. God, would you open my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus? Open my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, praying that day in and day out because I want to live a life of wonder and worship. I don't want to live a life of pressure and performance. I want to live a life that corresponds with what he did for me when he died on the cross. And that brings us to the next section that might be called the servant's substitution. And, and you'll notice this is one of the, one of the most Remarkable passages describing what Jesus did for us. And Isaiah continues to put us in the passage with him and with everyone else. I mean, just circle all the times first person plural language is used here. Check it out. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all, like, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He's saying, look, I want you to understand that what Christ accomplished, he accomplished uh, because of us. 
Uh, he did it for us. He did it because there was something wrong with us. And so this language of substitution where the servant would take everything that is wrong with us and give us everything that is right with him, this is substitution language. And this type of language is littered all throughout the Bible to help us see what Christ accomplished on the cross. I'll give you a few examples. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The servant's substitution. Although we turned our backs on him, failing to see him, failing to appreciate him, he didn't turn his back on us. Instead, he moved towards us. And he took upon himself everything that is wrong with us to give us everything that is right with him. This is the heart of what we call the gospel. One of the ways I explain this to my kids and trying to get them to remember this is I, I get them to hold out their hand like this. Let me invite you to hold out your hand with me. Just hold out a hand like this. And this is how I go over the gospel with them. And this is as a way to keep this in front of them. And it's pretty simple. It is Christ died in our place. Christ died in our place. And I'll go one finger at a time until they get a fist made. And I will look at them in that moment and I will say, this is the gospel that you must, you must grip. You want to grip this gospel and never let this gospel go. Christ died in our place. It's the language of substitution. And I share that with you here because this is the gospel you need to get a grip on. This is the gospel you need to wrap your heart around. This is the heart of the gospel. And I say that because there are some people in our culture and in our context that find this dynamic repulsive and they find this dynamic archaic. There are some who go to church and they carry the label Christian who reject this idea of the gospel. And it comes from some surprising sources and we want to be on guard against it because you lose this gospel, you lose any basis you have for assurance with God, any basis you have for any favor with God. And I'll never forget an interview that was shared between Christopher Hitchens and Marilyn Sewell. Before his death in 2011, Hitchens was an aggressive, you might add, evangelistic atheist. He hated Christianity. He hated all religions. And he wrote a book one time called God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. Well, he showed up in Portland, Oregon to be interviewed by this Unitarian minister out of Portland and about this book. And I want to share the exchange with you. Sewell says the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. She says, I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And listen to how Hitchens replies. This is an atheist, non-believer, doesn't want anything to do with the church, doesn't want to see the church succeed, doesn't want to see the church move forward. Listen to what he says. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, 
and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. You're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian if you lose that. The servant's substitution sits at the heart of the gospel and our relationship with God. Now, to be sure, the Bible talks about the atonement, talks about the death of Jesus in a variety. There are several metaphors and ways that the Bible would talk about the sacrifice of Christ, but sitting at the heart of all of it, that which pulls it together and holds it together in cohesion, holds it together in unity, is this idea of substitution, that Christ died in our place. That's what's being described here in Isaiah 53. This is why John Stott would make that classic statement, the essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God, saying in our sin, that's what we do. We try to take God's place. But the essence of salvation is flipped, right? The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Saying, you tried to take my place, I'm not gonna let you, and I'm gonna go so far as to take your place in death. That's salvation. That's the gospel. A couple of years ago, my son Asher hit my daughter Delaney, and, which means I had to discipline. There needed to be a consequence in that moment. So I took Asher and I put him in timeout. I, I separated him and set him off by himself with his nose against the wall and left him there crying, and he was in tears. And I just walk away. I go into the kitchen. Not 30 seconds later, I turn around, and Asher's walking around the living room. I'm like, what? what's going on? What are you doing, Asher? And so I kind of walked out, and I looked over, and I saw where I had placed Asher and sitting in his place was his sister Delaney. I walked up to Delaney. I said, Delaney, what are you doing? And she said, Dad, I, I didn't want Asher to be alone anymore. So I took his place. That's the gospel. That's the offended person taking the place of the offender. Taking the place so that the consequent was still carried out. The punishment was still rendered, but it wasn't rendered against Asher. It was rendered against Delaney. That's the gospel. That is God saying, look, sin carries huge consequences, cosmic consequences. Sin carries out death. And so what happens is the offended person, God, comes down in Christ and he takes the place of the offenders. He takes the place of sinners saying, I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna carry the consequence for you. That's how you are going to be saved. That's how you're going to be redeemed, which is where you get in verse 7. You find the servant's execution being described in that next section. And this portion unfolds like a processional where a lamb is being led to the slaughter. But notice that the lamb in this moment is not bucking. He's not squealing. He's not fighting against what's being required of him. Instead, the lamb is silently submitting to the sentence of death and and at this point, the details of this passage drive us to the details of the gospel where some 700 years later, Jesus was standing before Caiaphas in a kangaroo court fraught with uh, oppression and injustice and he was listening to false accusations and the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, he didn't say a word. Early the next morning, Pilate would say to Jesus in the middle of a, the Roman headquarters, he'd say, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of, but Jesus still did not answer. 
Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, who questioned him at length. Again, he remained silent. Herod even said Jesus was innocent. Nevertheless, Jesus was soon executed, and you know the story that he was crucified, making his grave with wicked men, being crucified between two thieves. And then after he died, what happened? A rich man showed up. Matthew 27, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his tomb, which he had cut into the rock. Remarkable detail. Isaiah 53, providing the prophetic script that everyone follows to a T. And I share that with you in this moment because I want you to know that Jesus did not die as a helpless victim. He did not die as an uncooperative scapegoat. He wasn't a son being abused by his cosmic heavenly father. That would be absurd. And that would only be true if Jesus didn't willfully go to the cross. But Jesus willfully and silently went to the cross. He submitted to the will of his father. He was cooperating with the plan of redemption that was designed before the creation of the world. This is what Jesus was doing. He's not a victim in this moment. He is executed willingly. He is executed because he surrendered his life saying, I'm going to take their place. And there would be you, there would be me, and there would be all who would trust in him. And this plan of Jesus going to the cross, it would not end in tragedy. It wouldn't end with his death. You go on to read in Isaiah 53, and we are told that it's going to end in triumph. Good things are going to happen Verse 10, the servant's triumph, but notice where it comes from. It says again, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light. What is that? That's resurrection. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, declaring us right, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This is a This is a remarkable moment saying that the Lord was pleased. It pleased the Lord to crush Jesus severely. Let's think about that. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is dying on the cross, and we are told that as he goes, as he dies, darkness begins to cover the land, and although it's noon, everything is dark around him. And that's an appropriate setting for what is happening in that moment. And we know that Jesus would cry out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he would make that statement. And there are many people who've thought about that statement, trying to figure out what it means. Some would say that that was a cry of perception, that Jesus simply felt forsaken by his father. Others would say that it was a cry of unbelief or doubt or confusion or despair or something else more familiar or palatable to the human experience. But all of those thoughts, all of those perspectives are grossly inadequate for what Jesus would suffer and what Jesus would endure. No, I think in that moment, it was a real cry of his actual position before God the Father. Jesus felt forsaken because he was forsaken. You've got to get that. He felt forsaken because he was forsaken. Jesus was being crushed under the weight of what? Under the weight of judgment, under the weight of wrath. That's why he is screaming in the dark. And it is a waking nightmare. 
Only what's taking place on the cross isn't something that's confined to Jesus' subconscious. What is taking place is something that's affecting his entire person. He's in anguish. He's suffering physically. We know that to be true. Crucifixion was miserable from what we read and from what we know about, just looking at how Jesus was beaten, bruised, battered, and nailed to a tree. He suffered spiritually as well. This is why Jesus, before he would go to the cross, he would step into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would weep through the will of his Father, and the will of his Father centered on this cup. And he would even ask, God, Father, if there's any other way for people to be saved, let's go with that. But in the end, Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will be done. And so what happened is he took the cup and he went to the cross. And as he was being crucified on the cross, he was drinking that cup dry. He was taking in the judgment of God against our sin and our evil, our wickedness and our rebellion. He was drinking that cup, suffering spiritually. But then there's another dynamic to this where Jesus was suffering what might be called separation, relational alienation. On the cross, Jesus was alienated from his father. You know that the, the sentence of sin is separation. That's one of the ways that we talk about being a non-Christian. You are separated from God. But what type of separation are we talking about? Can you be separated from a God who is everywhere present? I don't know if you've thought about that before, but can you really be separated from a God who is everywhere present? I don't think we can, at least not in the same way that I'm currently, I'm, I'm currently separated from my dad. I can't see him. He can't see me. I can't hear him. He can't hear me. We're not interacting. We are separated from one another. I don't think that's the type of separation we're talking about. Psalm 139, verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go to heaven, God, you are there. In the very next verse, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What is he saying? He's saying whether I go to heaven or whether I go to Sheol, God, you are there. I can't escape you. You are everywhere present. And what this means, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, for, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't mean he was fully separated from his father in the sense that God was somewhere and the father was somewhere and he was somewhere else. No, it means that the father was present, but he was present in the form of his judgment and in the form of his wrath. And in a similar way, when we talk about hell, there's a way where we can say that God is even present in hell that God will be present in hell as hell is where God, the, it's the presence of God's judgment, it's the presence of God's wrath. That's what hell is all about. And when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going down? The Lord is crushing him. The Lord is pouring his judgment upon him. Jesus is in that moment experiencing hell on the cross. As the separation he endured in that moment was separation from his father's blessing, his father's favor, and now he was experiencing what? His father's cursing, his father's judgment. That's what was going down, which is why we are told Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But again, notice it says that this pleased the Lord to do this to Jesus. Why? Well, it pleased the Lord to do this to Jesus because one, Jesus was willing, and two, Jesus and his Father were pursuing us. And God knew that through this, sinners like you and I could be brought into relationship with God. 
that we can be rescued, we can be redeemed. What pleased the Father about the death of the Son wasn't simply the death of the Son. It was, the, it was what the death of the Son represented and was accomplishing for people like you and me. Say so he was pleased to pour his judgment and his wrath upon Jesus because that means he will never pour his judgment and his wrath upon his kids. Which means that when you come to faith in Jesus, you will only know the favor of God. You will never know his cursing. You will never know his judgment. That the moment you put your faith in Jesus, all you know is favor. All you know is God as Father. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you can rest assured you will never say with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will never say that because Jesus did that substitution. Jesus went through hell on the cross so you never have to. And when he went through hell from the cross, on the cross, it pleased the Father because the Father knew that the arm of the Lord was powerful to come back from the grave. And Jesus stepped out of the tomb and what happened? He stepped out of the tomb justifying many. He stepped out of the tomb declaring many righteous. He stepped out of the tomb and all of a sudden the Father would bring you and I to him as his portion. And Jesus would lay claim on our lives and saying, you now belong to me. You now belong with me. And when Jesus grabs you, nobody can take you away. When Jesus grabs you, you're not going to be able to squirm your way out of his grip in any definitive sense. This is the assurance of our salvation. This is what Christ accomplished for us. So what do we do in response? Well, we don't move to this Jesus saying, okay, now I'm going to give my life to pressure and performance. Now I'm going to give my life to wonder and worship. I'm going to see that Jesus went through hell on the cross, so I never have to. I'm going to see that Jesus sang hell's cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I can sing heaven's song, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who did everything necessary for you and I to be secured forever and always. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so we press into this Jesus, resting in him, responding to this Jesus with wonder and worship, not pressure and performance. So be set free tonight, Christian. If your faith is in Christ, rest in that. Fix the eyes of your faith upon Christ and Christ crucified and risen. Get your eyes off of yourself. Stop living your life in front of the mirror. Move over and stand in front of the windows of God's grace, looking forever and always at what God did for you in Christ. It is sufficient for you now. It will be sufficient for you tomorrow. It is sufficient for you forever. This is our Savior. So our response is wonder. Our response is worship. I love how our artists have helped us do this by submitting different art pieces to us to, to kind of stoke this in our gatherings. And this week's art piece was submitted by Amanda Hickernell, one of, one of the ladies in our West Seattle Expression, and it's titled The Death of God. And listen to what she writes. It's posted here. It's pictured up there. She says, just as Christ's death and resurrection brings new life to the believer, a life of wonder and worship, Joy and whimsy. This is what we're getting after. Just as Jesus' death and resurrection brings new life to the believer, this photo depicts new growth on the other side of a tree that was marred by fire. What incredible love that Jesus would lay down his life for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to turn our attention to Christ crucified and risen, to fix the eyes of our faith upon him, 
Give us grace to live lives of wonder and worship. Give us grace to live lives of just sitting at the foot of the cross and trusting that what you did for us in Jesus is enough for us forever and always. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place. Give us grace to rest in that now and forever. And Father, I pray that if someone is not yet trusted in that reality, I pray, God, that you would move among them and that, they would, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of what Jesus did. And I pray that they would see it as beautiful for them, see it as needed for them, and I pray that they would trust, that they would trust in the Savior. God, we ask and we pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.